This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 15. Did Christ institute a church? After taking that little detour on evolution, we're now back on our track of apologetics. Remember the three stages are natural, Christian, and Catholic apologetics. In natural apologetics, we prove God's existence, the immortality of the soul, the existence of objective morality. In Christian apologetics, we talked about the reliability of the Gospels in particular, the historical reliability of the reality of the resurrection, and that Jesus, who claimed to be God, was God, and confirmed this by his miracles. In this third stage of apologetics, Catholic apologetics, the aim is to show that the church instituted by Christ when he was here on this earth is identified with the Catholic church as it is now, that they are one and the same, that they are continuous, and that the Catholic church of today traces back to Christ himself and his apostles. But the first question to answer in this area of apologetics is, did Christ institute a church? There are many who would claim that he didn't, that you can be a Christian just interiorly without any kind of external requirements or without any kind of visible structure to the church, without any dogmatic content to your belief, without any sacramental practices, etc. There are people that believe you can be spiritual but not religious. In other words, meaning you can be spiritual without having any particular visible religious community. And to be fair, you can be spiritual with a vague kind of spirituality without being religious. But that kind of vague spirituality with vague spirits, usually what we're talking about here is kind of new age spirituality. Those are usually not the spirits you want to be hanging out with. There are also those that say that the question of Christ instituting a church isn't really that important because all religions are, you know, paths to God, which we have to reject uh, because it's just logically contradictory. Among all religions in the world, there aren't agreements. There are extreme contradictions. Buddhism is not theistic. There's no belief in a personal God. It obviously contradicts with Christianity. Islam believes Jesus isn't God. Even among Christian denominations, there's no real agreement. There's usually disagreement on three major fronts, the content of belief, the means of worship, and the authority that we believe in. So to say that all religions are equally good or equally true is just to abandon oneself to relativism. That is, that there's no real truth anyway, so it doesn't really matter in the end. So either all religions are false or one of them is true. And that's what's at stake here. You can't have multiple religions that contradict each other on major articles of belief all being true. God can't contradict himself. We know that, we've said that before. So either they're all wrong or one of them is true. So that's the importance of this element of apologetics. If Christ instituted a church, which one is it? What are the beliefs? How did Christ command them to worship? What things did Christ require of them for salvation? What do they believe about grace? What do they believe about the sacraments, etc.? All of those things we'll talk about in various episodes. 
but this one answers the first question, did Christ institute a church at all? One initial response to talk about church is, why do I need anything in between me and God? Why do I need some community or some body or some hierarchical organism to intervene between me and God? Can't I have a direct relationship with God? The answer is, yes, of course, one can have a direct relationship with God. We are united to God by grace. However, the question remains, what did Christ instruct us? What did Christ do and teach us? What did he command us? And also, to the question, why do I need a mediator between me and God? Christ is the one mediator between God and man, something we hold. But look throughout all of scripture. When does God not use other mediators? When does God not use intermediaries in order to communicate both teaching and, and grace? Those mediators can be other people or a group of people. Think of the priests in the Old Testament. The mediation can also be through things. Think about Christ healing by means of words and objects and touch. So that question, we don't need a mediator, is true in the sense of one's personal spiritual life, one's life of prayer. But it's not true, at least on some level, because Christ, as we'll see, made certain things necessary for us that don't just rely on one's personal spiritual life, but include the community he instituted. And regarding whether or not the church is some visible institution, something that you can see and point out rather than just some invisible community of believers throughout the world, think about the incarnation itself, that God took on human flesh so that we might see and hear and touch him, as St. John says, that the word of life deigned to become part of his own creation so that he might teach us in ways that are fitting for human beings who are body and soul. So the church kind of follows that model as well. St. Paul says the church is the body of Christ. The literal body of Christ is visible. Visibility and being able to be heard and seen was the whole point of the incarnation, that he might redeem us in the flesh. So it makes sense that his church also would be a visible body, a visible institution, something that has a particular structure, something that has particular beliefs, something that has particular forms of worship, this makes sense because of the incarnation. It's visible and invisible. Christ is visible in his humanity, invisible in his divinity. The church is visible in its human element, invisible in its divine element. Scripture also has a visible element, the written word, and also the supernatural invisible element, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these are all considerations that make it make sense that a church is visible, that there's a particular church that Christ instituted with particular beliefs and forms of worship and authority. But let's look at the actual words of Christ in Scripture and see if that is in fact the case, that he instituted a church. Let's first look at the times where Christ actually says the word church in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he's talking to Peter, who has just confessed that he is the son of the living God. And he says, Truly I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Of course, we'll come back to this passage in a different episode when we're talking about Peter in particular. But here it's enough to just point out that Christ 
is speaking about building a church and he's giving authority to his apostles in general. And again, later we'll talk about Peter in particular. Another place where Christ uses the term church is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Christ says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, refer it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here even more clearly, perhaps we see the institution of a visible church, that is, some body of people to whom one can refer the situation as described by Christ in these verses. And also, again, he adds the same promise to his apostles that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, etc. So again, visible church being instituted with authority and particular leaders, it seems. People like to quote Christ saying, judge not lest ye be judged, but they don't like quoting him saying, if they don't listen to the church, treat them like a pagan. But we must take all of Christ's words and not uh, be selective. There are other places in scripture where Christ, while not using the word church, still says things that imply a visible church. For example, when he's talking about a city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do you light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. It's set on a lampstand where it gives light to all the house. That's in Matthew 5 and also Luke 8. He talks about the sheepfold of which he is the shepherd. In John 10, uh, verse 16, he says, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And evoking the, the idea of a visible group of people. He also talks many times about the dangers of division within the church, division within the people of God. In Matthew 12, 25, he says, Every kingdom divided against itself shall be made desolate, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. In fact, the entirety of chapter 17 of John's gospel, where Christ is praying his priestly prayer at the Last Supper, he prays for the same kind of unity he says that he has with the Father, that they may be one as we are one, and that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's a unity in a very intense way, a unity in belief, a unity in Christ. He also talks to Peter after the resurrection and asks him three times if he loves him, and each time he responds, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. So he again is telling his apostles to teach, to feed, to guide his lambs, his flock, those who hear his voice, those who follow him. It would be hard to see how this unity could be preserved or how the apostles could teach and to guide if there were not unity in belief and unity in prayer and unity in belief in authority. If Christ wants unity of his church above all, unity of his people above all, then that unity has to be real. It has to be based on something. You can't just all say, we follow Christ. That's a very vague, loose kind of unity. And there can be lots of divergences after that. So the unity he wants is one in belief, belief in all the things that he taught, belief in all the things he commanded us. This is what he said as he ascended into heaven to his apostles. Go and teach all nations, teaching them everything that I commanded you. So there's unity in belief. We also see unity in, in worship, unity in uh, the church's prayer, the way the church prays. 
We know that he commands his apostles in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to do in remembrance of him the same fulfillment of the Passover at the Last Supper, to do it in remembrance of him. And it's not just some thing we do to nostalgically reflect on Christ. It's a, a sacrament that he instituted. The word that he uses for memory, do this in memory of me, refers to the memorial sacrifice of the Old Testament. So it's not just some reenactment, it's a, a sacrifice. We as Catholics, and there will be another episode on this, of course, believe that he gives himself to us even still in the celebration of the Mass whenever we do that in remembrance of him. He basically celebrates the second Mass with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When they arrive, Christ basically does the same thing he did at the Last Supper, and when he does the same actions and says the same words, it's then that they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So Christ commands a particular form of worship. He commanded again when he was ascending into heaven that they baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So without going too much into the sacraments, which we'll deal with later, we at least have a call for unity in the sacraments, at the very least, baptism and the Holy Eucharist. And we already kind of saw the authority that was given to the apostles. We might be tempted to think that this is a, an authority just given in general to Christians, but what does that even mean as an authority? One can't be one's own authority. If we're all given the same passage of scripture, we could come up with as many interpretations as there are people, many of them being contradictory. And as we said, God can't contradict himself. So the authority that he gives to his apostles seems to be a special one. And that's borne out also in the rest of the New Testament and the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of Paul that we see that there's a recognition of that authority immediately. And now we'll look at some of the writings of the fathers of the church so that we can see not only in scripture does Christ seem to institute a church and the apostles themselves and the early Christians recognize that fact, but also after that first era of Christianity with the apostles, what did they pass on to their successors? What did the fathers of the church say in the later first into the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries say about the church. And by looking at what they say, we get an even more thorough understanding of what the apostles had taught in their preaching. And also we can see what the form of that church looks like compared to what the church looks like now. As we're running out of time, I'll just give a few examples from the fathers of the church because we'll go into the fathers of the church much more in future episodes as we see what they believed about uh, or what they taught about various elements of the faith. St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, uh, he was a disciple of John the Apostle. He died in 107 AD. He said, where the bishop is, there is the community. Even as where Christ is, there is the church. And as therefore the Lord did nothing without the Father being united to him, neither by himself nor by the apostles, so neither do anything without the bishop and presbyters, neither endeavor that anything appear reasonable and proper to yourselves apart, but being come together into the same place, let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope, in love and in joy undefiled. There is one Jesus Christ, than whom nothing is more excellent. Therefore run together as into one temple of God, as to one altar, as to one Jesus Christ, who came forth from the Father. So here you have teaching that meshes very well with the parts of the Gospels that we read. This call for unity, the uh, adherence to the successors of the apostles, the bishops, the unity in worship, you know, the mention of one altar, one temple, one place. St. Cyprian of Carthage, who actually, uh, his feast is today. He died in 258. 
He says, It must be understood that the bishop is in the church and the church in the bishop, and he is not in the church who is not with the bishop. St. Jerome says, Between heresy and schism there is this difference, that heresy perverts dogma, while schism, by rebellion against the bishop, separates from the church. Nevertheless, there is no schism which does not trump up a heresy to justify its departure from the church. So in St. Cyprian's words, he's showing that the bishop is the, the sign, the visible sign of unity of the church, of the particular church. And St. Jerome points out that if there is not unity in belief, there is not unity in the church. So when one perverts a teaching of Christ, one causes a division in the body of Christ. So just to sum up, because of the incarnation, it makes sense that Christ would institute a visible church to be a, a visible sign of his presence and teaching. It seems clear from the Gospels that Christ intended to institute such a church with uh, authority given to his apostles, with unity in faith and unity in belief, unity in prayer, unity under that authority that he passed on or that he gave to his apostles, and that the early Christians and the fathers of the church seem to believe that is what Christ commanded and that is what Christ did and instituted. To more deeply understand what Christ intended to do in building the church or instituting the church, I'd recommend just simply reading the Gospels. Read the Gospels with this, with all of this in mind. Just choose any one of the Gospels and look at what Christ said and did and see if it seems that he did institute a church that he intended to be visible in this world, a visible sign of his presence, that he entrusted with certain authority so that it wouldn't depart from his teaching, that he commanded certain forms of prayer, that he commanded obedience to a certain authority. Just read the Gospels because there's nothing more convincing than just simply going to the words of Christ himself. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please visit my Patreon to become a member to have access to other material for study and prayer. Also, please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a five-star rating. God bless.